0: Hello there this is downtown the podcast episode 21 originating emanating coming out of our zone radio studios on broadway in bangor may and rich kimball here with carrie haskell downtown the radio program airs every day on wzon am 620 in bangor wkit hd3 streaming audio at our website downtown with rich and you can always download the wzon app and take us anywhere you go on the planet, and at least to some of the inner planets. I don't think we're cleared for transmission to Neptune as yet, but we're working on it. Get the engineering staff uh, on that right away. A program brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. This week on the podcast, a couple of Very fun conversations, one with a musician who's been making music for, gosh, more than 25 years now. Uh, Jill Solbule has got a brand new album out called Nostalgia Kills, and Carrie had a chance to talk with her recently about the album, Making Music, her career. We kick things off, though, by remembering one of the iconic television shows of all time that's celebrating an anniversary this week. Frasier made its debut on NBC 25 years ago, a spinoff of sorts. Of Cheers with Kelsey Grammer is a terrific character, but it became so much more than a spinoff and has become one of the most loved shows in television history. Our friend Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter talked to just about everybody involved, uh, the cast, writers, directors, producers for a wonderful piece that appears in the new issue of Vanity Fair. So let's join Mark Freeman and revisit Frasier. Mark, how are you this afternoon? I'm good. How are you? I'm intensely jealous of you. That's how I am, that uh, you get to talk to all these incredibly talented people from uh, some of the greatest shows of all time. This cast, and all of them, all of the folks, uh, whether it's MASH or Taxi or or New Heart, uh, they're all pretty tight, but you were telling me this group in particular is closer than most.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's two things. One is for Taxi, there's something Jim Brooks said to me which kind of, I think, applies to everything across the board. And he said, when you do a TV show that lasts more than five years, that basically because you're spending five days a week, 10 to 12-hour days with these people, they become family and you share the good and the bad, the lives, the deaths, the births, the marriages. And so that way everybody kind of develops this closeness that you don't see in a lot of other environments. Having said that... Frazier is an extreme example. If you look across the board, um, Perry, Gilpin, and Jane Leaves, they're godparents to each other's children. Um, Perry, uh, Jane's parents have more or less adopted Perry as, as their own. Um, she went to visit them last summer in London. Uh, Perry got married at um, Kelsey Grammer's house Kelsey owns artwork um, from Perry's husband. I know everything sounds like it's centering around Perry, but those are the ones popping into my head. Um, David Hyde Pierce and Jane and Perry stay in close communication with each other. And some of the people from the show have moved on to Modern Family. Christopher Lloyd um, is one of the co-creators of that and Jeff Greenberg, who does the casting for that show. They both come from Frasier, so they still see each other every day. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's just an amazing little group of family that if you had to have a family, not through a work environment, you, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a better example of one.
0: I thought it was very interesting that uh, when things were going well on Cheers and they had this wonderful character of Fraser Crane, uh, that he made a deal with Paramount to produce some kind of series after Cheers ran its course, but the initial concept was something, well, a whole lot darker and probably not as funny as Frasier.
1: Yeah, when you talk to the co-creators about it, they they kind of look back and they kind of scratch their heads at themselves as well, thinking, how do we come up with this? Kelsey swears that he, he was a motorcycle rider, and he says that, some, he thinks some of their inspiration came from the fact that he rode hardleys. But the gist of it was they thought, what about some kind of Malcolm Forbes type who's a gazillionaire and he rides bikes on the weekend. There's this contrast in terms. And he has a motorcycle accident, so he's paralyzed, has to live in some penthouse in New York City, has a sassy Rosie Perez type um, physical therapist, and runs his empire from there and then gets to learn about life in the real world from the Rosie Perez type.
0: <laughs> Instead, uh, they went the route of just continuing the journey of Frazier Crane and making him become a talk show host out in Seattle. And then it was building the cast that would surround him. And you point out and the creators point out that one of the first big decisions was in choosing a foil for him that was not an opposite uh, in his brother Niles, but somebody who was very much like his character, and that was such a new dynamic in television.
1: Well, what's interesting, too, is even David Hyde Pierce at first, kind of when he read the script, thought, what's going on here? (laughs) Because it seemed redundant, so why would you want to have two characters exactly the same? Yet... It makes perfect sense when you look at it from a higher level of being raised in the same family, an older brother, the younger one aspiring to, and never quite doing as well, them being um, odd odd men out probably in whatever school environment or social environment they're in because of the the way that they carry themselves and uh, the way that they. Uh, compare themselves to other people. Um, but they, th- as it says in the article, that wasn't the first way they were going to go. The real, the re- it was really supposed to be the father-son dynamic between Fraser and Martin. And it was the casting director an associate of Jeff Greenberg's who came in with the picture of David Hyde Pierce. And in one of the most, like, random choices of, of casting, she said, he really looks like a young... Kelsey Grammer, and they didn't want to do that, as in have a brother, because they had just come off of Wings, which had a brother relationship. But they looked at the picture and they agreed it looked like him. Then they looked at his clips that she had brought from a series called The Powers That Be that had been canceled, and they fell in love with him. And so they wrote this character form, and the way they basically decided it was they'd be the same, but they'd kind of have this. The same within a certain world. One goes to Harvard. One goes to Yale. One's more Freudian. One's more Jungian. So, same world, but but contrasts within that.
2: It also had the sort of dual purpose of uh, taking the character of Frazier, who had been sort of the the oddball above everybody else person on Cheers, and bringing him back to a more relatable level as sort of the guy in the middle between his father and his brother on on Frasier.
1: Well, that's one of the things when you set up a show like this, and especially with successful shows, uh, and I've had more than one person use this phrase about the maypole, that everyone's dancing around the maypole. You have to have the central character who's grounded. And Frasier never had to be grounded on Cheers because he was one of the peripheral people at the bar with all of his problems, and he had quite a big evolution on that show. But when you brought him over here, it's not that he was a straight man, because he's a brilliant actor and comedian, but he had to be grounded so that everybody playing off of him would, A, have their moment to shine, but then B, their idiosyncrasies would kind of pop through in a way that it couldn't if he was the wacky one.
0: Uh, When you talk about uh, the character of Niles, the episode, and and you mention it in the Vanity Fair piece, everybody talks about it, and it's that six-minute tour de force of physical comedy that David Hyde Pierce did, and I I didn't realize until reading your piece that that was actually directed by Kelsey Grammer.
1: Yeah, the co-creators were talking to me about that because Kelsey, at the time, um, was going— through stuff, and he wanted to get into directing, and that was always, uh, I think, after several years into the show, that was his intent. But being an actor first and then a director, sometimes you have a unique perspective of what the actor is doing or thinking that you can relate to them, and, and what I loved about Kelsey directing that episode was the advice that he gave to David Hyde Pierce, which basically was, at no particular moment does he think that he's not in control of the situation. (laughs) And if you take that one little sentence I just said, and you watch that six-minute silent piece, uh, which is uh, an ode to Mr. Bean, um, as David Lee had said, you'll notice he never panics at any moment because he keeps thinking, I'll do this. But then, of course, it falls apart, and then he has to solve that. Um, One random thing, too, about that scene, which didn't make... The article is there's a moment in there where he runs into the kitchen t- to grab a pair of scissors and he runs out and then he starts walking because you're not supposed to run with scissors. <laughs> and uh, they said that was an ode to a scene in Cheers with Frazier when he was trying to kind of going over the top in a breakdown, thinking of the craziest thing he could do. And he grabs a pair of scissors and he, and he runs around the bar and they remembered that and they threw that in. So that's sort of obscure... I love it. and Fraser fans.
0: That's brilliant. We're talking with Mark Freeman here on downtown the 25th anniversary of fraser John Mahoney, such an important part of that series. Hard to believe that there was somebody at the network that said lose the dad.
1: The the uh, the person who told me that, which is Ken Levine, is a brilliant uh, television writer. He, he was when he was telling me the story. It was in part of where he was thinking. This happens all the time in these pitch meetings where you come in with one idea, such as a father-son relationship, and then the person says, that's a great idea, lose the dad. So <laughs> and you're just left with son. So for him, it was par for course, but it was, and of course, on top of it all, then when this is the success, that person can then say, I knew it. All the way from the beginning, I said it should be a father-son show. So that's kind of the dynamics of uh, the Hollywood world. Um, maybe some of the darker sides of it, not to say that it's all dark, but in in a dog-eat-dog world of uh, Hollywood, you can get that from time to time.
0: Perry Gilpin had such great chemistry with Kelsey Grammer in the show, but she was not the original choice for Roz.
1: No, it was... Uh, it, it ended up happy for everybody, but it was, it was Lisa Kudrow... They said it was the most difficult role to cast. They saw hundreds of people um, through video, through New York, through L.A., and it kind of came down to the two of them. And the best way to summarize that is if you think of Phoebe as Roz, you would see why Lisa Goudreau didn't work. She played that same quirky, spacey kind of persona that she did so wonderfully in Friends, and that's not to say that she can't go beyond that, but that's what kind of won her the role. But they saw on the first day of a rehearsal, really, that that wasn't working because you need someone in the radio station, as someone put to me, in the radio station... She, Roz, is stronger than Frazier. He is subservient to her. It's her, she's the producer in the big cheese. But outside, he's more of the superior intellect. So there's this yin yang thing that's going on. And if you take a quirky, spacey character, it just doesn't quite work. And they realize that. They tried to adjust by rewriting some of the dialogue to accommodate that. And then by the third or fourth day, they just realized it wasn't going to work. It had nothing to do with the Lisa, really, just the way that that she came in with that role. And it worked out well for everybody, because a year later, she got friends. So,
2: Now, it sounds like a perfectly happy set, but there was a little bit of friction. Uh, the dog, Eddie, played by Moose in his uh, later day uh, stand-in, his son, Enzo, didn't get along very well on the set is what you uh you dug up.
1: <laughs> yeah it, it, there's all these great stories about moose and i was trying to think about how to handle it in the article because you have to touch on moose somebody was saying and i don't think this made the article if i recall right that she uh, moose was in a um commercial at the super bowl uh and moose had his own limo and, and she had to Snag a ride in Moose's limo because she happened to be at the Super Bowl too, and, and uh, that's how big Moose had become. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, the two of them, it was so elaborate, they couldn't really be on the set together. When they came over in the trainer, brought them over in the truck, there had to be a divider which, if I recall correctly, had to, they couldn't even see each other. There had to be a, a split in the car so that if they were on set for some reason together, they didn't have to see, smell, notice, <laughs> hear each other, because they hated each other that much. Um, and, uh, and then on top of it, all poor Enzo, they had to repaint him from time to time to, to match all the, the, the spots on, uh, on Moose.
0: And what was it they, um, they had to put sardine juice on John Mahoney's hands to get either Moose or Enzo to stay on his lap?
1: Yeah, well, it, it turns out the way that they, they, they said Moose was an actor first and a lover second. So he's not the dog that was going to come running to your lap and, and, and want belly pets and licking and so on. He basically was an actor who there was his trainer off, off screen yelling, Moose, Moose, Moose. Well, everyone does an impersonation of that from the show that I talked to, by the way. It's a higher pitch. It's more like Moose, Moose. <laughs> and uh if you actually watch where wherever Moose is looking on screen, you always notice that's that's you could figure out that's exactly where the trainer is, but um because Moose wasn't a lap dog, John really hated that dog because the dog was not friendly to him at all. <laughs> and they had to put sardine juice to do to do something to attract the dog and maybe get licks for him on screen, but it's kind of funny knowing that, and then seeing uh, Moose slash Eddie jumping into his lap and seeing <laughs> seeming like this affectionate dog who just also stares at Fraser, but so that bond between him and John is, is all acting.
0: So uh, I was very interested to read because we had Julia Duffy on the show uh, not too many weeks ago, that her agents reached out at one point in the run of the series and said she would love to play the role of Niles' unseen wife, Maris.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting side note, because what they had originally planned w- was the way it kind of unfolded, that they wouldn't show Maris, they would have some descriptions, but they didn't want her to become Vera, uh, who was Norm's wife on Cheers. That was never seen, but only talked about. So they were... Going to do a reveal on her, but they started loving the description so much that, as they were writing it, they kind of realized there's no human being <laughs> on earth who could play this character with the with the like I said the descriptions of her are so off off the map, <laughs> and so she i'm sure read and and loved that character the idea of it, and probably would have if someone could have done it uh would have been. A, a fine choice for it but by that point they had gone too far and there was no turning back and they realized she would never be seen um one other thing on julia duffy though which i didn't mention probably haven't mentioned before is uh she was also and maybe she said this she was a finalist for the role of uh diane chambers on cheers
0: right that's right yeah yeah uh, it's great too and one of the reasons the show was such a success and why it holds up so well is the respect that the writers and the cast had for the audience, their rule, as you point out, no stupid jokes, no stupid characters, but also it's clear, too, from your conversations with the actors, the reverence they had for the writers, and that becomes especially apparent when several of them talked about their final lines in the series.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of them talk about the collaborative aspect. There's something called cast-to-the-rail, which I had talked about, I believe, when we were talking about Taxi, um, that had started early in the 70s, and, and I kept trying to find the root of it. But the gist was, the writers and the producers sit in the bleachers where the audience sits, and on rehearsal, the final rehearsal, they go scene by scene, and after every scene they yell, cast to the rail, and the cast comes over, and they get notes from the writer and director. So, and, and anyone could make a suggestion back and forth, so it wasn't dictating terms one way or the other, like you'll find in a lot of shows. But by the time they get to the end, having done this show for 11 years and lived and breathed these characters, and as I was saying earlier, the going through lives and deaths and births of all the people on the show, coming up with lines for the characters that they could handle themselves was turned into a very emotional thing. And everybody as in life, in very emotional situations, some keep it to themselves, some project it out. Um, the lines that they had chosen for the end of Frasier, there's, they say very little, but they also say a lot. And, uh, when they wrote Nile's line, um, and, uh, i got to get the right quote for you here, but uh, <laughs> when they when they wrote Niles' line, um, I'll miss the coffees, um, even the writers, Joaquin and Christopher Lloyd, knew that was going to be, it was a perfect line, and David Hyde Pierce would have a horrible time getting through mm. it, and, and he did, and he said through every rehearsal he could barely keep it together. And uh, similarly, they came up with the line for um, Martin to tell Frazier, thanks for you know, and... What's funny about that particular one is, and this isn't in the story, they actually didn't have that there. Uh, They were doing rehearsals, and John Mahoney came up to them and and said, you know, uh, I don't really have a goodbye scene with Frasier, and they realized they really didn't have one, which is kind of ironic considering what Mm. the show was originally going to be based and then if you think of the character, a man a few words, uh, a different generation about revealing their emotions, the thanks for, you know, says a lot by saying very little in four words.
0: Well, it's a wonderful piece uh, in the latest Vanity Fair and oral history of Fraser. Uh, Mark Freeman, great work as always, and always love talking with you. Thanks again for making some time for us here this afternoon, and we look forward to catching up with you down the road. That sounds great. My pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me. That's Mark Freeman, Vanity Fair piece, up and online and available everywhere right now, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the premiere of Frasier, which is still, I mean, it hasn't been off the air all that long, but that's another one. If I'm channel surfing some night and I stumble onto
2: an episode of Frasier, yeah, I'm in, (laughs)
0: because I love them. They're great.
2: Yeah, and they did such, uh, the, the comedy is non-topical. I mean, it's it holds up no matter, what. it's one of those ones that in 30 years people are still going to be watching and laughing at. So good. And when we come back, Carrie steps out from the producer role for a
0: very fun conversation with singer-songwriter Jill Sobiel. It's next after this quick word from our friends,
2: Security meets strength.
0: Just over five years ago, a couple of friends got together. Their plan? Create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and the eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born, G-N-E-I-S-S. Nice Brewing, based in Limerick, Maine, in the foothills of the White Mountains, is where you'll find Dustin and Tim. And they combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage to produce truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, any of their seasonal beers, Stouts, Porters, IPAs, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and look for Nice in cans all around the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. I lost my
3: keys, I lost my heart. Lost my car in the parking lot. Lost my voice, but can hear sing from the island of lost things.
0: That's a track island from the brand new album from the talented things. singer-songwriter Jill Sobule. The album is entitled Nostalgia Kills. That's the island of lost things. Uh, the album just dropped last weekend on that very day. Carrie Haskell had a chance to catch up with Jill and talk about the making of the album and her
2: career. This album just has some wonderful songs on it, starting right out of the gate with a song that just had a glowing write-up in Billboard earlier this week, I Don't Want to Wake Up. For those that may not have seen the article, can you talk about the genesis of that song? Oh, my
3: gosh. Well, um, where do I begin with this one? You know, I just... First of all, I want to say that I don't believe at all that you have to suffer for your art or you have to be in a bad place to write a good song. Not at all. That saying, it was just after a really bad break. <laughs> and I have to say, sometimes it gets those juices flowing. And I was in the, you know, staying with the, you know, a friend's couch and it was a not the best time, and and a friend, at the same time, okay, I was reading the historical Jesus, History of God, Karen Armstrong, so I had all this kind of Old Testament stories and allegories going around in my head, that mixed in with a friend said, you know, why don't I give you a little bit of my chocolate with mushrooms in it? So there was the beginning of that song. Well, <laughs> the first time and the last time that I ever wrote a song under any kind of influence. And you know what? It, it, it
2: wasn't bad. No, the results of the uh, Old Testament and, and Mushroom Dose Brownies came up with a really, really great song. that I, that's, uh...
3: I know. Now what do I do? Well, the, the last time I had done mushrooms was in junior high school going to see Alice Cooper's billion-dollar baby show live in Denver.
2: Yeah, I, I don't imagine the results were quite as productive uh, for that time as they were for this one.
1: It
3: wasn't productive, but it was the most amazing show I ever saw in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> also, back then, you're like, smoke machines. How do they do that?
2: There's, there's a great video that pairs up with I Don't Want to Wake Up that used uh, footage from uh, I, it. I was reading in the article uh, an old anti-drug movie. So, how did the idea to use that fa- that footage on this song come come about?
3: Well, I, I go in the rabbit hole very. You know, uh, I can spend hours googling one thing, and then five hours later, and somehow I was on silent uh, images of dreams in silent movies, which there was some of that, and then anti-drug movies from the 60s, and there was this crazy, whack, strange, animated, -animated, half-animated, half-real Alice in Wonderland anti-drug clip or movie. And it was one of those that I'm not sure if you saw it back then, you'd be like, you know what? I want to do these drugs (laughs) or else it would have scared you to pieces. It was probably a combination between the two. So, my friend Joshua does these amazing videos of found footage, and we had to find out if these were uh, public domain, and they were. So he 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 took them and and created this wonderful, beautiful, strange video that seems to somehow be the right soundtrack.
2: Yeah, the the video fits the music as well as anything is. As- that I've, I've seen in a long, long time. It was another song on the album that really caught my attention uh, was I Put My Headphones On. I think that experience of those, uh, those big headphones that covered your, you know, just completely covered your ears and blocked out everything around you is uh, an experience that a lot of kids of the 70s and 80s are going to really attach to. I, I, I clearly remember doing just that, just sitting and, and having the headphones on and, and sort of blocking out the world.
3: And there was something more special than earbuds—those big cans that would cover half your face. It was—you could—it felt like you were more lost in it. There was something like you had a beautiful big machine on your head, <laughs> and um, that would transform you. Uh, yeah, that—that—that that, that song was really thinking about as, as a kid in that same junior high school period of. of uh, well, first of all, I was really glad that I had a brother that was six years older than me that had really good taste in music, so I was really into my brother's music as opposed to maybe the teen bopper stuff that my friends were listening to. And I was an odd kid who didn't, you know, that I didn't have that many friends, and I wanted to go home and just listen to my music, or I wanted to watch the Watergate trial. <laughs> that was the two things. But... Yeah, it's kind of a, um, the song is both uh, a kind of vision and, and narrative of what it was like to be kind of feeling like an outcast uh, teen at the same time a celebration of, of music that I listened to and how that, that basically helped and saved
2: me. It's funny, I, my brother was uh, seven years older than I am, so I had that same that same part of it, too, where I sort of skipped the music that all my friends was listening to, to a large extent, and was pulling out his eight tracks and popping those into the stereo with the headphones, and, and that's the music I was listening to.
3: Yeah, we, we, we had the cooler stuff.
2: <laughs> now, another song that's been getting a, a good amount of attention early on is... Uh, Island of Lost Things. It was a pick-of-the-week selection with Rolling Stone earlier this summer. That's, that's again, and I keep saying it, and I seem to be repeating myself, but another just amazing song on this album for you.
3: Oh, uh, that might be one of my favorite lyrics on the record. And It, it began, again, it was, a, it was uh, one of the later songs. I wrote it, I think, a week into recording. And at first, it was... I started writing a list of things. I'm very forgetful, and when I'm stressed, you know, every every hotel has an item of mine somewhere. Um, And I'm always, you know, I asked my mother, "Do you think I've got early Alzheimer's, like really early Alzheimer's, or a tumor in my head?" I keep losing my phone, and she's like, "Honey, you've been that way since you were out of my womb." (laughs) uh, But I was making a list of all the things that I lost. And all the things that are missing, and and thinking about this, you know, this strange island or place where our, you know, the missing sock is, the missing keys, and then it started changing and evolving into things that have lost people I've lost in my lives, uh, situations, uh, towns I've lost, uh, and it started getting uh, confidence I've lost, um, and it's became a
2: whole other beast your songs do that there's the meaning that it starts with the meaning that's sort of the superficial meaning but so much more gets woven into it as the song progresses it, definitely on this album but in in your music in general that seems to be that's the way that your songs develop and that's part of the the appeal of your music yeah i mean i
1: think
3: of I try to think of myself as a a storyteller. I was doing a a songwriting workshop, and I'm sure it was different than than other writers where they talk about the verse versus chorus, wanting to put in a bridge. and, And I kind of, I think, usually, not always, but I like to write from the very first word. I don't have a chorus i I'm just writing a story, and I like it to have kind of a beginning and middle and an end and and uh, sometimes there's a little twist in there so so uh, you know and I think maybe on those headphones, some of my brother's albums were influences some of the artists in that style of writing.
2: We're talking with singer songwriter Jill Solbule here on downtown, and uh the album. Nostalgia Kills released on Friday. It, it, people think of a nemesis as being a bad thing. In your case, uh, having one led to a to a pretty good song. Uh, this, <laughs> the uh, The song almost great, spurred on by a, a run-in you head with someone in uh, at an industry. And I'm assuming now that's a music and not steel industry event. You didn't
3: you know it? Oh yeah, it was at a party, and it was kind of a Music industry it was kind of a hipster thing in L.A. And I remember there were these three dudes talking and one was saying, yeah, you know what? It's, no, it's true that like people over 40 can't really write. They can't write pertinent songs anymore and, and music. And maybe, you know, it's just it's a young people's game. And I remember going home and saying, you're an idiot. And walking off, and I don't didn't know who I was. But that guy, ever since, has been my nemesis. I don't remember what he looks like. I don't know. But he is my nemesis. And I love having... Everyone should have a nemesis that really doesn't matter, or they don't know. And the nemesis doesn't know that they're the nemesis. But that guy is my nemesis. And he kind of spurned on that song and gave me a little oomph of, like, I'll show you.
2: Now, most of the album is original stuff you wrote. You did include a couple of covers as bonus tracks, and one is a beautifully stripped-down version of the uh, 70s uh, Ooh Child. You also have a great cover of Warren Zevon's Don't Let Us Get Sick. Now, you toured with Zevon a few times over the years. Um, The fan-recorded duets of you and Warren doing Going Down to Jackson and I Kissed a Girl, by the way, are two of my favorite tracks on my phone's playlist. You're... I just the the it just they work so well even though they're not great recordings just the enthusiasm and the joy of the songs. Your time spent touring with Warren did that have an influence on your music and or the way you wrote or anything like that?
3: Oh well, yes, I think it pushed me to become a better writer, better lyricist. Like I, he was one of those writers that. Uh, a literary writer. He was one of those that I I wanted to write like that. And he was one of my yeah. lyrical heroes. So, to be, open up for him and to have him to know that he's listening to you. It's like, you better be on your game. You've got to be on your game. And, um, and he was, he was so, you know, there's a lot of things about Warren, you know, I mean, he was a bad boy. He, he, <laughs> With me, he was so kind and so generous and funny, and we had a, a unexpected, beautiful, beautiful relationship. And uh, I miss him really so much. And 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 I'm uh, here's one thing too that I think about him is oh, for my friggin' nemesis is oh yeah, that they're. You know, people like their earlier albums were so much better, and then they got lazier as they got older. His lyrics, to me, got even better. Like his those last two records, Slammy. Mm. So there. It, can, it makes you feel like you can't get lazy. you still got to push.
2: I've always thought that being a fan of Zevon's stuff and then your stuff, th- there is a, that, that storytelling aspect of both of you have in your music Uh, just the the imagery of the words or the imagery created by the words is so vibrant and uh that's that's what makes your stuff uh, on this new album so appealing
3: thank you so much Uh,
2: now uh, the uh moving away from the songs a little bit uh this this is a a uh, crowdsourced album. I feel like I should do the, uh, the the disclaimer that all the news people have to do when they're talking about a book that their company is part of. I was part of the Kickstarter and uh, have have. Uh, you had some other people that uh, were pretty uh, well. Let's say a bit more well known than I did. Uh, Fred Savage of the Wonder Years. Tom Bergeron was part of the crowdsourcing for this. I, I, I love this one. Your cousin, Neil, who used to be your babysitter and also happened to be the creator of Law and Order of SBU?
3: Yes. When <laughs> when he, he he created it and he was there for many years and then the last four or five years he left and has done other things. But I, I remember going up, I get to go up and hang out with iced tea and... Take pictures of myself on the the, uh, the slab where all the corpses were. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then the top donor, the one that got the title, it's a joke. It's a total joke. Joss Whedon.
3: As, as Joss Whedon is my personal Lord and Savior. <laughs> and at the top tier of what you could donate was for a certain amount of money, and I thought it was a complete, you know, it was a complete joke. Who's going to do it? I will put on my record and say that you are my personal Lord and Savior. So, Josh Whedon is my personal Lord and Savior. Well, the creator you... of Buffy. There you
2: go. <laughs> I, I yeah, that that's hilarious. Now, this album it feels like an album and not just a collection of songs, uh, like you know some music today. It, and I think it's a part of the digital. You know, many albums just feel like a bunch of individual songs. Was that something that that thematic part of it? Was that something that you had in mind going in as you were developing this?
3: Well, you know, I have to give credit to Ben Lee, who was the producer. I gave him like so many songs, and he was overwhelmed. And I go, "What songs do you want to make for this record?" and he picked the kind of more contemplative—I will not want to say darker—but but not as topical or goofy. And he picked these songs that had that did feel like a book of short stories. It doesn't feel like a bunch of songs or singles. It feels like there is a, a if there is a thematic sequence to it. There they're, they're, uh um, and I I have to give it to Ben for doing that. Actually,
2: for me, a lot of the the album felt like you know endings being a way for to to lead to change or or to lead to new things. Um, that that was
3: yeah. I mean, the, the the title track "Nostalgia Kills" really is. I mean, the album you were saying, "Headphones Looking Back," uh, and uh, some of these songs were are on this. Uh, this, I'm doing a theatrical piece, a one-woman show called Hashtag F-Words 7th Grade. I, I'm not sure what I can say on your show. <laughs> but it's, So it's a look back, but it's also a warning that, you know, let's, let's look and look at it and watch it today, but let's put it away and move on because, you know, the, the, the nostalgia kills, you know, we have to keep moving or die.
2: That That's the chorus of that. Yeah, it's uh, well, I feel like I could talk about Nostalgia Kills with you all day, but you don't have the time for it, and we're, we're probably going to run out of time as well. Uh, I do want to co- touch on a couple of your other projects. Um, now, on this album, you don't really reach into politics at all, but uh, you have been known to. Uh, your company is called Pinko Records. Uh in 2016 you spearheaded a collaborative album of protest songs called Monster Protest Jams and that was that was a great album. What was that experience like of gathering songs created for a cause from so many talented songwriters and singers and musicians?
3: Oh yeah, and it, I I think because in the last years and this was before uh, this was gosh I started doing this 2 years before the election. Um so I'm also a friend with a lot of artists and songwriters who, who are activists, from Wayne Kramer, who has jail guitar doors. I've played many of the prisons that he goes to, um, from Boots Riley to Steve Earle. So there, there's a community of, of old-timey act like in the old days, the Woody Guthrie. <laughs> yeah. Listening?
1: There's...
3: a uh, uh, an act, activist community, so it was easy to get all those people together because I, I knew them. And it's interesting that this before this record, and I had other ones, and and Ben didn't cho- chose the political ones. And I thought this record, I had to, I had to do this record because the last couple years I've been really involved writing topical and political songs, mm. and. uh and will continue. I think this just has to be a
2: personal record. Now, outside of the albums and stuff, you you're, do a lot of uh, work, stage stuff. Uh, you had a musical, Prozac, and the Platypus. A sound, you did soundtrack work on the TV show Unfabulous. Uh, working on a new staging of Yentl, going back to the original uh, book as the source material. You're working, uh, have worked on a musical called Times Square, looking at New York City in the 70s, the Jill and Julia Show, uh, a collaboration with Julia Sweeney, and you mentioned earlier the current stage project you're working on, the one-woman show, F-7th Grade. Since your music has such a strong storytelling component to it, do these types of projects feel like a natural extension of what you do with your music, or is it something different?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and it's a really good time for it too. It's, it's now the, the theater world as is, is in the last years is more open to non traditional uh, musical theater music. Mm. Um, you know, so so you don't have to have jazz hands going on in all your music. So so it seems like a, being a storyteller it feels like a natural place to go. Plus, I can procrastinate. And when you're doing a project, I mean, I procrastinated doing this record for years. But when you're in collaboration in the theater, you have someone that says, "Hey, we need a a, a song for this scene, you know, and we need it tomorrow." <laughs> yeah. And I work, I I like that.
2: Yeah, the deadlines help help force it along a little bit.
3: I Deadlines, yeah.
2: Uh, Now, before we finish up, I do have to mention what I find to be one of the funniest songs in your repertoire. Uh, It's something, I think you did it, it it was just an in-studio appearance. Uh, It's called Slutty Halloween, uh, (laughs) which it contains the hilarious line for me, and a skimpy black dress is not very scary unless you're Ann Coulter. Oh, yeah. That
3: Uh, was in the side, but the idea of the song was, you know what, I love Halloween, and I hate that women... And it's not a prudish thing. I hate when it's just like the quote-unquote slutty costumes, unless it's really well done. Like if you're, uh, you know, the, the you've got a really amazing vampire outfit. It's the, a, a, a sexy vampire outfit. It's not just like a little miniskirt and you put horns on. No,
2: right? That's yeah. The, not right yeah there, there's so just that
3: one did yeah i had to put in the ankles i think so you know just wearing you know horns and a skinny black dress isn't good unless you know you're pretending you, you know the scariest vampire you know vampires uh, that were the mall and coulter who said some pretty ridiculous things in the last two days
2: actually yeah it's uh it's a lack of imagination you know that's that's the problem is that uh, <laughs> you know you just gotta put a little yeah, more it was, effort and so, i like
3: I like scary costumes. Come on.
2: But any more songs for musically neglected holidays in the works or you know,
3: well, you know, you know, I have written uh and, and Harry Shear you know, from Spinal Tap is, is every every he does these Christmas shows every year for the last fifteen years and he always includes my holiday classic, Jesus with a Dreadle Spinner. <laughs>
2: Yes. uh, Yep. I, that one, I've tried to encourage people here to play it, but I haven't got anybody to play it on the air yet. (laughs) I will say, I I will say our sister station, the uh, classic rock station down the hall does a bunch of holiday songs and your version of Merry Christmas from the family gets a lot of airplay and a lot of listen requests. Every single... Every.
3: Oh, wow, yeah. that's a good one.
2: Yeah, yeah, we uh, that that gets a lot of airplay in December on WKIT. Uh, so
3: Fantastic. Uh,
2: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank
3: you so much, and what a nice conversation. And it's always a pleasure when you have interviews with people that... It doesn't feel like interviews, it feels like a conversation, and they know their stuff, so
0: thank you. That's Jill Sobiel talking about the new album, nostalgia kills here on downtown the podcast nice work there mr haskell stepping up from the producer role and you got the ultimate compliment which is why that was so much fun to listen to you know what we try to do here and and on the radio show as well is have conversations with people
2: that that don't feel like interviews yes and i was glad to get that uh get that from jill that she felt that was conversation and that's what I want to do. If I'm going to talk to somebody, I, you know, anybody can come up with the interview questions, but to talk about their stuff and their work. And obviously the people we talk to, their work is important to them and you want to get behind that a little bit.
0: And, and that comes with doing the work, but also knowing the subject well. And
2: you've been a fan of Jill's for a long, long time. Yeah. I've been listening to her music for, well pretty much her whole career i was at uh, humane when she start first started out and started listening there and have continued through the years
0: well the new album nostalgia kills just terrific uh, you can download it buy it in the traditional form whatever you like but check it out good stuff nostalgia kills jill Solbiel. thanks to jill and thanks to mark freeman of the hollywood reporter and vanity fair for joining us for this week's episode 21 of downtown the podcast brought to you every week by cross insurance where security meets strength and by nice brewing company german style beer from the woods of maine we'll see you next time on downtown the podcast